0: Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. I'm Jane Hong.
1: And I'm Tim Sang,
0: And we're your hosts.
1: This season, we're focusing on the history of Asian American Christianity and the ways it can help us understand our present moment.
0: Thanks for joining us.
1: Hello, friends. Welcome to Centering, the podcast of Fuller Theological Seminary's Asian American Center. I'm Tim Sang and I'm the Pacific Area Director of InterVarsity's Graduate and Faculty Ministries. I'm also a historian of American religion with a focus on Asian American Christianity.
0: And I'm Jane Hong, a historian of 20th century America. I specialize in Asian immigration and US-Asia relations. And I'm currently writing a book on the history of Asian American evangelicalism. So today we're very happy uh, to welcome Dr. Melissa Borja, who's an assistant professor in the Department of American Culture at the University of Michigan where she's a core faculty member in the Asian Pacific Islander American Studies program. Melissa earned her PhD in history from Columbia, a master's in history from Chicago, and her BA at Harvard. Lots of heavy hitters here. Before teaching at the University of Michigan, Dr. Borja, or Melissa, was assistant professor in the history department at CUNY Staten Island. When I met Melissa, we're both trained as US historians. Uh, we overlap, we have a similar generation. Um, We run in some of the same circles, and so we attend some of the same conferences. I think what's really distinguished Melissa is that from really early on, she embraced the study of religion, and she currently serves on two steering committees for units within the American Academy of Religion, or the AAR. As some of you um, more religion nerd-ish people might know, the AAR is um, one of the largest uh, academic conferences in North America. Folks from all different disciplines come together um, to nerd out over the study of religion. So Melissa really is in many ways an expert in both history, but also history of religion. My first question um, is: you know, in thinking about the value of history, you know, you're a trained historian, you're deeply engaged in these scholarly conversations about religion. Um, and so, you know, coming from that background, what would you say historical approaches, so historical analysis? What does it bring to the study of religion um, and Christianity in particular? Like what does history offer us?
2: Well, first of all, it is such a delight to participate in this conversation. Thank you for inviting me. I have so much to say about why history matters. And I will say, first of all, that it challenges our assumptions about what is normal. I think so many times we take for granted that an institution has always been the way it is that an idea or a practice or belief has always been the way it is. But history challenges us to confront these assumptions, it destabilizes these ideas. Also history helps us remember that things change over time and things change over time because of choices that people make. And so I think one thing that's really exciting about history is helping us rediscover human agency I think we're living in a moment when there are so many challenges right now, so many crises. And I think it's useful for us to remember that there's a history to these crises and these problems that we're facing are the product choices that people made. But we can also find solutions and these ideas about what these solutions are, are choices we can make now and we can learn from the past about choices we can make now to change our future.
0: No, I think that's I think that's really great. And that's something I think many historians, especially in light of, you know, events happening in Washington DC um, these days, I think many historians have been thinking about that. Like what is the value of history and how can it speak to the present in ways that people can actually apply? Um, so I think that I am wholeheartedly with you. You know, we're gonna be talking today about the Filipino American church, Filipino American history in particular, but I know that your primary research is actually on a different topic. And so you're currently writing a book titled Follow the New Way, Hmong Refugee Resettlement and Practice of American Religious pluralism under contract with Harvard University Press. Can you tell us a little bit about what your book covers?
2: Yes. So this book, which has been a baby of mine for about two decades almost, it began as a sophomore research paper I wrote when I was 19 years old. So it has grown alongside me as a scholar. And I um, argue that Hmong religious life uh, is, has been shaken in profound ways by refugee resettlement policy. So I argue basically U.S. refugee policy disrupted traditional Hmong beliefs and practices at the same time that U.S. refugee policies created close relationships between Hmong refugees and Christian resettlement workers. And it is the combination of these forces, the disruption of Traditional beliefs and practices, and the introduction of Christianity and the relationships facilitated by policies that resulted in the decision by many Hmong people to become Christian when they came to the United States. So, religious life is difficult to study. It's hard to count how many people who are uh, Hmong American are Christian, but the number of people who identify as Christian has Certainly grown in the four decades that Hmong Americans have been in the United States. So that's what my book aims to study. But it also bears the imprint of other projects. I am also an American political development scholar. And so one big question I'm grappling with is: what are the religious repercussions of when the state relies on religious institutions to do work? So that's another piece of this story. I really see this as a project that. Is a political history, a religious history, and also an Asian American history.
1: Thanks, Melissa. That's that's fantastic. I was just about to uh, mention the fact that you are a a person who's who who likes to connect your scholarship to social political advocacy. And as an active public scholar, uh, you've done um, lots of other activities to to try to make uh, your scholarship available to 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 uh, to all people or ordinary people, <laughs> including those of us who are not professional historians. So for the past few years, you've uh, written for the Anxious Bench, a blog that features historians who write about religion. And that blog can be found at pathyachts.com. Um, and some of your recent columns relate to uh, Asian American and Pacific Islander history, such as um, I'm Dreaming of an Asian American Christmas. That was a nice title. And in, in that blog, you use a Netflix show, Dash and Lily, to talk about uh, Japanese American religious life. And there was another one that I also enjoyed reading called The Power of Faith in Filipino Americans Fight for Justice, which I think we'll have some some conversation about today, uh, where you talk about Filipino Americans' long history of raising hell <laughs> as faithful advocates for justice and freedom. And as a matter of fact, the, my, I first became aware of you through your delightful blog post back in 2018 called Crazy Rich Christian Asian. So it's great to to see you doing all of that. Now, could you tell us a little bit about these two projects that you do that are integrating your academic work with your public uh, advocacy, Stop AAPI Hate and the Louisville Project on Theology and Religion? Uh, What are you finding in terms of how anti-Asian racism is impacting Filipino American communities, especially during this current uh, COVID-19 pandemic?
2: Yes, lots to say about those two projects, but before I jump into that, I'll just say, I'm glad that you appreciate my scholarship on Netflix. I often jokingly say that I'm an ethnic studies scholar, religious studies scholar, and a Netflix scholar. And so the pandemic has meant I've spent a lot of time at home doing research. I call TV watching my my important research time. Uh, So I have enjoyed that very much. Thank you for validating that life choice I've made. Uh, (laughs) Um, I'm involved in two big projects right now that are very much of the moment and I really think it's important for us as scholars to think about the work that our scholarship does in the world. This is shaped by my own story. I am not the child of academics. I come from a working class background. The idea that I would have a career thinking and writing and researching never occurred to me, but I feel a great responsibility, a moral responsibility to do work that serves the communities that produced me. And so for me, that is Asian American communities, it's Midwestern communities, I'm from rural Michigan, it's Filipino American communities is very much informed by that commitment. So my two big projects right now relate to COVID in various ways. Uh, The first is work with Stop AAPI Hate. I have a related spin-off project called Virulent Hate, where my team is, looking at hate incidents and resistance incidents that are recorded in news media. And we are analyzing on a ver- using a variety of measures how this has developed over the course of the pandemic. And we've seen a lot of really interesting trends and we're excited about launching our website later this year using GIS and mapping it and sharing it with the public. But it's a project that's guided by three main goals, which is improving both public and scholarly understanding of anti-Asian hate, guiding the activism of community organizations, and also shaping public policy. So that has been a lot of time and energy, but also a lot of morally meaningful work, I think. And it's been a fantastic opportunity to raise up the next generation of scholar activists. I have 15 researchers on my team, all of whom are committed to this work for scholarly and political reasons. The other project is also the result of the needs of the pandemic. It's a joint project funded by the Louisville Collaborative Inquiry Grant, a group of theologians, and other ethnographers and I'm the sole historian, we are studying Filipino American theology and spirituality in the context of COVID. And we're particularly interested in understanding how Filipino American theology and spiritual resilience has been expressed in the context of the pandemic. Many Filipino Americans are frontline workers. Many Filipino Americans in my own family have worked with COVID patients, have gotten sick with COVID. So this is an issue that's very dear to my heart. How does faith shape their responses to this crisis? But we're also looking at how religious communities are responding to the crises of the moment as well. So that's underway. We're in the beginning, lots of things have changed because of the pandemic and what we're able to do right now. But this is just the beginning. So we have about three years on that grant.
0: Wow, that sounds amazing. I mean, So much of what you shared really does resonate uh, with me. When you think about like migration um, in American history, I mean, there are actually whole history books devoted to the migration of Filipino nurses because that's how huge, right? A phenomenon it it was and, and continues to be in many ways. And I think a lot of that literature, that scholarship, it really ties back to the history of US empire and kind of US colonialism in Asia. And I suppose it's a good segue into thinking about maybe some of the background um, to our discussion today. Actually, the other thing I'll say is, you know, my own mom's a nurse, my mother-in-law's a nurse, they're both Korean. On the one hand, I think there are so many commonalities and things that are shared um, among communities. Um, At the same time, right? We all know that the umbrella term Asian America, Asian American, right, is so internally diverse, uh, heterogeneous, and it's also contested. And I think that's part of the reason why we really wanted to have this discussion today. So when we think about Filipino Americans, so Filipino Americans have actually composed the second largest Asian ethnic group in America, second to Chinese Americans, um, since at least 1990. So for several decades, actually. But for some reason, they're often overlooked um, in discussions of Asian-American history, also just Asian-American popular culture. Sometimes they're not included at all. So, um, you know, I've followed Filipino Twitter for quite a while now. And I think one of the things I often see is, you know, folks, they'll post these articles about kind of best of lists, top 10 Asian-American films, top 10 Asian-American actors, top 10 Asian-American foods, da, 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 da. And I think one of the kind of persistent themes is that oftentimes these lists will just omit um, <laughs> kind of any Filipino fil- Filipino or Filipina representation. And I think that sense of marginalization or kind of double marginalization, right? Excluded within the excluded. I think that's something that I, I've seen um, in a lot of kind of these posts and in just a lot of discussions that I've heard um, within the academy, but also outside the academy. Because I think a lot of folks who do media, pop culture, also have these conversations? And I know part of that kind of feeling has driven, in part, the creation of Filipino American History Month, which is actually October, right, as a kind of separate celebration in addition to API History Month in May. Within the current conversation, we can talk, you know, and I and we will talk um, kind of about. Kind of what this marginalization looks like and kind of why we think it's happened. Historically, when you think about the Philippines, um, so I'll just give a little bit of background and then jump right in, uh, into our conversation. I mean, the Philippines has a distinct history even within Asia, right? The Philippines was colonized by Spain and then it was colonized again uh, by the United States starting um, in the late 1890s at the Spanish-American War. Um, and that's actually a big kind of turning point for a lot of um, U.S. history, right? I start my U.S. in the world class with 1898. But what that has meant, that colonial history, um, it's created a very kind of special relationship between Filipinos and the United States, because Filipinos, unlike you know other Asian ethnic groups, they were colonial subjects. They weren't classified as aliens in the same way that Chinese, Japanese, and others were Um, they actually had a special status as U.S. nationals. Now, of course, we can talk more about this, but U.S. nationals, that's actually, that was a category, legal category. Nationals were not the same thing as U.S. citizens, right? So nationals was actually a whole new category created um, in the aftermath of the Spanish-American War, specifically because U.S. lawmakers did not want to extend U.S. citizenship to people in Guam, Hawaii, and other kind of territories taken by the United States during this imperial period. But it's really created a different kind of history um, for Filipinos in the United States. So because of their special status, Filipinos were actually not excluded um, like other Asian groups in the early 20th century. So actually Filipinos and Filipinas were unrestricted um, in terms of migration before 1934. So their timeline of exclusion and restriction looks different from those of other Asian groups. And when we think about the history and timeline of when most or many Filipino and Filipina migrants entered the United States, you know, many came in the 1920s, 1930s. It's actually during the height of Asian exclusion. By this point, no other Asian group, Chinese, Japanese, South Asians, nobody could enter the United States as long-term permanent residents, but Filipinos actually were the only group um, that was allowed to do that. And so it's a different kind of history. It's a different timeline. And the last thing I'll say is, so what this means for Filipino-American history is that their kind of history of discrimination looked different. And so their struggles were unique um, in many ways. And so in my first book, I, I have a chapter on, on Filipino-American struggles for U.S. citizenship. And if you look at the arguments they used in the 1930s, 1940s, you know, in order to claim U.S. citizenship, there are different kinds of arguments they faced different kinds of resistance. Filipino men, for example, in places like California were hypersexualized, and they did face racial violence. You know, in different ways uh, at different times. I mean, the pieces that I really emphasize are that you know Filipinos are—they become eligible for U.S. citizenship in 1946 upon the granting of Philippine independence—and. Um, What I found most interesting is that the Filipino government actually had a huge role to play in that whole story. And so my research, I I spent time in the Philippines doing research in the Philippine National Archives. And so that's what a lot of my research uncovers. But World War II and the 1940s are really this pivotal period for Filipino American history, because not only do Filipinos become eligible for U.S. citizenship, the Philippines becomes independent. This is also the period during which hundreds of thousands of Filipinos fight for the U.S. military in World War II. They're promised U.S. citizenship and veterans benefits if they fight. But after the war is over, U.S. Congress actually passes something called the Rescission Acts, where they actually begin to renege on their promises that they made to Filipino veterans. And what's amazing is that there are still veterans and veterans uh, family members fighting for those benefits today in 2020. Um, there have been some laws passed that redress some of these exclusions, but Yeah, in 2019, there were were actually bills passed to fight for veterans, spouses and children to receive the benefits that their uh, family members were promised. So, you know, it's a long story and we could talk more about this history and thinking about kind of this history. I mean, it, it really does give rise to, I think, a different kind of religious story in some ways. And so I guess my first question for you, Melissa, is. Can you walk us through kind of a brief history of Filipino of America and then how does the church in particular figure into this history?
2: So I think that colonial context is so important. I think one thing that's great about this particular moment is both immigration history and religious history is taking seriously the need to think about the history of American empire and colonialism. And the Philippines is a really important site for thinking about this because the Philippines was the site of Spanish colonization, American colonization, and also subjected in the present moment to a lot of powers in Asia. So I think that's a really key context in all sorts of ways that are both visible and maybe less obvious to us. So I'll just give a little bit of family background because I think it is an example of how all the phenomena you describe is shaping our present. The fact that my mom is a nurse is the consequence of 100 years ago, the US government saying, Filipino people need to be civilized and we need to help them learn to be clean. So we're going to start these nursing schools to help them be clean and healthy. And then later in the 20th century when there was a nursing shortage, the nurses from the Philippines came to the US because of that need. But it really is uh, a story that begins with American empire. My family is also very much a military family. My brother's in the Navy. Um, Military service for my family has been very celebrated. It is for a lot of Filipino American families. And even before my brother joined the Navy, we have relatives way back early in the 20th century who served in the U.S. military, even before they were citizens. And so I think that is also something that's very present with me. The celebration of military service, which I think is probably higher among Filipino Americans than other Asian American groups, although I'm not entirely sure, is again the legacy of colonialism um, in American empire. One other thing that I think is curious about Filipino Americans, and this relates to the earlier point you made about why we don't see Filipino Americans in a lot of cultural forms about Asian American life is the fact that a lot of Filipino Americans speak English quite well. And that is the consequence again of American empire. So uh, a lot of Filipino people go to schools where English is a language of instruction and they come to the United States with a greater facility with English, it means that they're less likely to want to live in an ethnic enclave. They're less likely to feel the need to worship in an ethnic church because they're able to speak English fairly well and that linguistic need isn't as much of a demand as it might be for other Asian immigrant groups. So you see different geographic patterns, different patterns in church membership that I think is shaped by, again, the history of American empire and colonization. And finally, of course, to pivot to the topic of religion more fully, the fact that so many Filipino Americans are quite religious is, again, the consequence of colonization. Going back to Spain, the fact that the Philippines is distinctive among Asian countries for the percentage of people who identify as Christian is really significant uh, because the people who then come from the the Philippines to the United States are then Christian. What's critical is that they're not just any Christian, they're predominantly Catholic. And there are um, populations of Protestants in the Philippines, but hands down, the largest group are Catholic. So I think when we think about the history of Asian American Christianity, we need to pay attention to a couple distinctive features that set Filipino American Christian experiences apart. It is that history of colonization, which means that they are engaging in institutions differently, and they are engaging in different religious institutions, specifically um, the Catholic church rather than um, Protestant churches. And this is very impactful For lots of reasons, it makes Filipino Americans more difficult to study, I would say, because they're less likely to be found in ethnic congregations compared to, say, Chinese or Korean Americans, because the Catholic model is not, it's a different model. You're going to go to your neighborhood church. You're not going to go to an ethnic church. And although the Catholic church did have immigrant ethnic churches or national churches earlier in its history, it pivoted away from that. And by the time Filipino Americans began coming to the United States in larger number at the end of the 20th century. So this is all really key contexts for making sense of Filipino American religious life and Filipino American life in general. But as much as I just talked about the distinctiveness of Filipino American experiences I also want to call attention to all the ways that they have a lot in common with what we know about the significance of religious institutions and immigrants' lives. So churches are important for ethnic and community, ethnic and cultural identity formation, um, the building of ethnic community, sites of mutual aid, sites of charitable giving, sites of political engagement. So this is true for Filipino Americans as it is for Chinese Americans and Korean Americans that churches are places where people do those things. It's just that the churches are a little different and the types of engagement might be a little bit different. I'll add one one final thing, because I mentioned earlier, I love TV. And my favorite SNL sketch is the sketch called St. Joseph's Christmas Eve Mass Spectacular. I don't know if you've seen it. But it's really funny because it's about a Christmas Eve mass and it has Kate McKinnon and all these people who are it's a funny parodies of characters you see at church. But there's one moment about three quarters of the way into the sketch where they said, who are all those Filipino American ladies? And they say, this is their church. Who are they? And <laughs> It makes me laugh because if you go to my Catholic church in Saginaw, Michigan, I know those pews and pews of little Filipino ladies. They're my mom, they're my aunts, they're my mom's friends. I think that's a real phenomenon. It's just funny because we forget that they're there lots of times because they don't have their own church, but they're there, they have like 10 pews in a big church. And so I think this really challenges us more broadly to reconsider what it means to study Asian American Christianity. Um, if we're going to continue to fixate on the ethnic congregation model, we're gonna miss a lot of other ways that Asian-American Christians do religious life.
0: That's a really great point. And I think that's something as I wade into my current book research, those are some struggles I'm encountering. (laughs) So how do you, who are Asian American Christians? Where are they? How do you access them? And this is something that I think historians, anyone who's interested in studying anyone, I mean, it's hard to know how to go about things. Actually, you know, I know that for your, your book research, you've done a lot of oral histories. And I think, so historians call, I mean, what many scholars just call kind of interviews, historians call oral history interviews. And I think um, historians have kind of a different approach um, to how we gather these interviews and use them as sources. Can you say a little more, uh, Melissa, about how you've used kind of oral histories in your research and what they can reveal that perhaps other kinds of sources like documents, for example, might not be able to capture?
2: Yes, I wrote a whole article about this actually called Speaking of Spirits in which I discussed how doing oral history is a profoundly humbling experience in a in the best way. And by that, I mean, we think we have the story if we look at the archives, but then actually asking people to describe in their own terms, their religious experiences might indicate to us, maybe not that our story was wrong, but that it was incomplete. And that way we, we might not be understanding the story on the right terms, in, in the right ways and using the right terms in the first place. And so I think oral history is really critical for understanding the experiences of people who are often not in positions of power, but oral history is also useful for understanding experiences that are really sacred and not going to involve relationships with the spirit world. So that is what I would say has been the most exciting thing about doing the oral history work for my uh, current book project, but also the oral history work that I'm doing in other projects. I I have a big project I've been working on at Princeton where we've done 150 oral history interviews asking refugees about the significance of religion in their resettlement experiences. Um, That has been really exciting and there's going to be an interview component too for the Filipino project. So, I think that having sacred space to listen to people, share their stories, and talk about how they make choices in conversation with the gods and spirits that are present in their lives has been an amazing experience as a scholar and as a human being.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. I I remember conducting oral histories back in in the 90s, and I had the same sense that you, you have about this being a very sacred moment of re- remembering the past and, and changing all of my assumptions about the first generation Chinese, for example. If I might you know, shift, focus on, and look back a little bit, would it be okay if you could share with us maybe a few examples or figures and episodes in Filipino-American Christian history, uh, maybe dating as far back as the 1930s, 50s, and 60s?
2: Yes. so. The churches have been there wherever Filipino Americans have been there. There's a religious story wherever they are. And I think it's very powerful to look back at how Filipino Americans have engaged in religious life and how they have drawn on religious ideas and practices and institutions to push for justice. Part of this is my own position as a scholar speaking from the vantage point of 2021, where there is an unfortunate assumption that religious life means being reactionary and conservative. And I don't think that's true. (laughs) I think it's been very interesting for me to look back to the past and find all of these examples of how Filipino Americans have been fighting for justice, fighting for fair treatment and equal treatment and how religious life has been a central part of that. So I think for example, of how Filipino American laborers in the 1930s uh, in their push for fair working conditions, there were a lot of union efforts and labor organizing efforts that drew a lot of their leadership from Christian student organizations. And I think that there is a tendency to overlook the connections between religious institutions and labor institutions. But for Filipino Americans during that period, there was a lot of personnel relationships um, some of the same people doing the same work. Moving forward to other moments in U.S. history, The significance of Filipino-American Methodists in contesting martial law in the 1980s is really significant. So um, drawing on religious networks, religious institutions, religious beliefs were really significant in how Filipino-Americans pushed for political freedoms. And I would say that I see it in the current moment. I see Filipino-Americans drawing on Catholic social justice teachings and saying it is because we believe in the dignity of workers and the dignity of all human beings that we're going to insist on immigration policies that take care of all people and healthcare policies that care for all people. One thing that I think is important to remember is there is a huge undocumented Filipino American population. One of the most um, significant dreamers in American culture today is a Filipino American. Um, And so I I think it's really interesting to think about how religion shapes the activism of Filipino Americans in in the political crises of the moment.
1: Thank you. That was great. Because... Uh, If I can just share about my own experience, Uh, um, back in the 90s, I was the president of the Asian American Baptist Caucus. And as a caucus, our goals were to try to fight for greater representation within the American Baptist Church's denomination. And back in the 80s, um, it was largely dominated by Chinese and Japanese. And we discovered that as immigrant Chinese and Japanese and Korean um, members started to come into the caucus, they're not concerned at all about representation or social justice. They were more concerned about church growth, evangelism, and and, and and those types of questions. But then an influx of Filipino Baptists joined our caucus, and that just confirms what you said, that there's this connection between the spirituality and their sense of public and political engagement, which I I have has impressed me so deeply, even up to now. So so thank you for sharing about that. I'm it's good to know that there was a long history of that, and that that is something that makes the Filipino American witness uh, really unique among uh, religious groups. I think Jane has a question too, right about that. <laughs> so when
0: we think about Filipino Americans, how does this translate into? politics, and I guess specifically more so electoral politics. I'm thinking about the work of Janelle Wong. I'm not actually as familiar with Filipino Americans in particular and how religion plays out politically, but I wondered if you could say a little bit about that. Oh, this is tricky.
2: And I, I would draw on Janelle's arguments here. I think she is right in saying the most significant factor in making sense of Asian Americans' political engagement is generation and length of time in the United States. And so I think maybe with other groups, it makes more sense to think about religious affiliation as a predictor for voting patterns or racial identity or ethnic identity as a predictor of voting patterns. I don't think that works as well for Asian Americans. For Filipino Americans, a lot of them are Catholic and the Catholic church is split in terms of partisan affiliation. And a lot of Filipino Americans are very politically engaged but Filipino Americans are also very split. I think they lean to the left, but compared to other Asian ethnic groups, compared to say Indian Americans, they're more evenly split. Um, So I think it is really more interesting to look at the political engagement of Filipino Americans who were born in the United States or their parents were born in the United States and Filipino Americans who recently migrated. And that's a bigger gulf of difference uh, in different ways of engaging in politics, different issues matter to them, different party affiliations. So I'll just say one story. My family's very politically engaged. I have a very large Filipino American family. And I grew up in Michigan with maybe 20 cousins, Uh, and so we had a Zoom gathering in advance of the 2020 election. And it was very striking that everyone in my generation voted one way and almost everyone in the generation before (laughs) us voted differently. And we've all been in Michigan since the 70s, but it was still very striking. I will say my mom and my dad were the only ones who voted like the younger generation. And so we gave them the task of talking to the aunties. None of us wanted that task, so you can do that mom. (laughs) But it was very interesting. They were also very committed to their position. So it wasn't a casual conversation about politics. It was who is volunteering, who is knocking on doors, who is talking to their neighbors, who is giving money to political campaigns. So I think it's been very interesting to see <laughs> the differences. I will say that I've seen change, political change in my own family over the course of generations. So my parents came to the US in the late seventies. My dad came in 1980 actually. And around 2000, my dad realized that racial justice matters. <laughs> I have joke, he discovered after 20 years, he's not a white man. And he needed to organize around that. And he did. And he was actually one of the first members of the Michigan Governor's Advisory Commission on Asian Pacific Americans. He became very involved in government. And he's really animated by issues of racial justice and did lots of work at the local and state level. But it took a while for him to get to that point. And I think In terms of practical next steps, I'm a very practical person. I'm a political organizer who wants to make change. I think we need to, as we think about intergenerational conversations about difficult issues like racism, hold out the possibility that people move on these issues and change on these issues and they they have a capacity to learn and grow. Because I definitely have seen that in my own family and I've seen that in the communities I work with.
0: Based on your experiences, both in your family and in the community, what are some of the experiences that can awaken someone like your dad or kind of a, an immigrant who came a long time ago to kind of awaken them to, I guess, the racial realities that many folks who are born here and who are raised here might just accept as, you know, the norm. Just curious.
2: I think a personal experience can really be impactful and seeing a loved one experience racism is very impactful. So I grew up in a particular context. I was born just a few weeks before Vincent Chin was killed in Detroit, 1982. And if you aren't familiar with this story, any listeners out there, he, he's a Chinese American man who was killed by angry white auto workers, For people who are Asian American living in Michigan in the 1980s, that was a really important experience because it did two things. It made people afraid. It reminded people that they were racial outsiders and they could be targeted in acts of hate because of it. But it also gave rise in some communities to a lot of organizing and political resilience and resistance. Well, my parents and a lot of people who are Asian American at that time responded by taking a very assimilatory tack. And I think the logic made a lot of sense. You do America well, you speak English well, you go to the football games, you wear the flannel shirts, (laughs) you do America well, and you're a good model minority, then no one's gonna give you any trouble. And I think that worked to a point. Because by the time I was in high school, I did all the things right and we were still experiencing acts of racism. And I think for my parents, and I'm speaking for them, I don't know if they would agree, but I think this is right. I think for my parents to see their successful Asian American kids, despite all the ways that they are so American, despite the fact that we speak English well, that they have a son who's joining the Navy, we have an American flag on every vehicle and every corner of our house that we would still be targeted in acts of racism was a wake up call for my parents. And I think, I hate to say it, but I think these important experiences of pain are necessary sometimes. I would like to think that we can think about these issues differently without experiencing suffering. I do think though that experiences of suffering and racism and injustice, the most powerful catalyst for changing thinking about these issues.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Back when I was the president of the Asian American Baptist Caucus, when our Filipino American members started to come uh, and join, they they were largely immigrants. Uh, What was fresh in their experience was the overthrow of Marcos and people power. So I wanted to affirm, I think that personal connection to suffering and to actual the, the historical context does shape how people respond and how they, how they take their religion into active and, and, and public practice. So, so my question here is sort of a question about looking back at the last maybe this past uh, four years uh, or, or even maybe a little bit before that, what do you think are the major challenges uh, given this context that we are emerging from for Filipino American Christians going forward?
2: The challenges for Filipino American Christians are the challenges that face other Christians in many ways. To what degree are we going to engage in the big pressing crises of our moment? And and I'm talking about political crises and social crises, health crises, but also environmental crises, which is important for Filipino Americans because the Philippines is sinking as, or rather ocean, levels are rising and this endangers the lives of people we know and love. And so this, is, this issue of climate change is very important for Filipino Americans and environmental justice, I should say. I think the big question is how are Filipino American Christians going to draw on their beliefs and their practices and their institutions and their religious commitments in a way that meaningfully addresses all the crises of these current, the current moment. I think one big question I have is the degree to which the leadership we have will keep pace with the demands for change that we're seeing among the younger generation. And here, the generational divide is really, really important. We see really big differences in opinion among the older generation and the younger generation or between the older and the younger generation in lots of different communities. I think it's a very stark in Asian American communities. I think it's also very stark in religious communities more generally. And so I think if the church wants to be relevant in the lives of Asian American Christians and Filipino American Christians, then it needs to respond to the way that young Filipino American Christians are using their faith to address the injustices all around them. And I think that this, is going to be interesting to see. I think also because I'm speaking very much informed by a Catholic context, the degree to which the Catholic church is going to have leadership that reflects the changing demographics of the uh, Catholic church in the US is going to be interesting. I have to say, I recently started watching the great american baking show holiday edition from last year where the winner is a filipino american fryer i don't know if you've seen this brother andrew uh corriente and he's just lovely i highly recommend watching it because everything he makes looks delicious but he's very interesting because he's a second generation or at least American born, I believe, Filipino American. He's about my age. He did his participation in the show wearing his cabochin robes, which is so interesting. And then he would get flustered when he would bake and make the sign of the cross. And he was just very openly religious in a way that was really lovely. And I loved it because it was so proudly Filipino American and so proudly Catholic and so proudly religious in a space where you don't expect a character to do that. And so I guess my big question is to what degree are Filipino Americans of the next generation going to lean into a public expression of their faith in ways that are going to be relevant in the world as it's changing around us?
0: Now, those are some great thoughts. I mean, I think this is something I think a lot about for my daughter and just thinking about this generation um, and your daughter, Melissa, um, your grown sons, Tim, um, thinking about kind of what this COVID-19 experience, for example, how it could politicize an entire generation of Asian-Americans, some of whom might be experiencing, I don't know, I guess, might be experiencing anti-Asian racism for the first time. I know I've seen some testimonials it seems baffling to me as someone who grew up on the East Coast, but you know, yeah, it really does raise a lot of questions about kind of what these next generations will look like and how they'll think differently about their identity, but their Asian American identity and also their faith um, and how they might see those things as, as entangled and intertwined as you so eloquently expressed, Melissa. Thank you so much for joining us today. I think we've learned so much and we're really excited to hear more about the projects that you're tackling, which are so incredibly important, I think for all of us. So wrapping up today, um, just thank you for joining us and we will talk to you next time on the next episode of Centering.
1: Thank you, Melissa. Thank
0: you, this was so fun, thank you.
1: It was. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another episode of Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast.
0: You can listen to Centering Episodes at soundcloud.com backslash Podcast or your favorite podcast apps.
1: Go in peace and remember that God loves and embraces all of who you are.